March 11, 2012, ladies meeting in Slovenia. So, I was asked to talk about women's ancient and modern roles in society. Does that interest all of you, or do you want just an open discussion? What would you prefer? That's interesting. Okay. Can you move over a little bit this way so if more people come? And I guess so we can move this table. You have to have etiquette, huh? Yeah. No, 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 it's not necessary. I don't even need this one. I'll just do it to make you happy. <laughs> So who is interested to hear about women's social roles? Okay, all right. So this comes originally, oh, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to try to talk very slowly, which is difficult for me. Well, I was brought up in New York City and people talk very fast there. So I will try to talk very slowly and very clearly, but if I say anything you do not understand, you have to ask me. Is that a deal? Yes. Everybody agree? Otherwise I won't talk. <laughs> Is this deal? Yes. Okay, if you, think, if you think I said something crazy, then you please just ask me. Don't just think, oh, she is something crazy. <laughs> you ask me, did you say this? All right, is that okay? Yes. If you don't know what some word means, you ask me. What, do, what did you say? What does that mean? I will not be offended. I will be offended if you don't ask. All right? I don't want you to go away thinking I said something that I did not say. So in 1988... I put together a paper about the position of women in Krishna consciousness. And recently, I've been working with some other devotees to expand this. So now we're up to 40 pages. And I am hoping it will become a book. I'm not sure if I will have one book just about women or one book about Varnashram and Bhakti with a section about women. Also in Radhadesh in Belgium and at Nuvrajdam in Hungary, there's a group of renounced ladies, Vanaprasta ladies, that have been meeting and also starting to talk about a renounced ashram for women. And I'm hoping that can also be part of the book. So if any of you find these topics interesting, and you want to just move a little bit, so you're not, yes, there you go. Sorry, we have God over there. I mean, of course, he's there, too. What to do? <laughs> um, he's everywhere. It's a problem. <laughs> so, if you're interested in this topic and you'd like to help in some way or write something, so please just let me know. So, of course, in the ultimate issue, 
There's no question of man, woman, black, white, brown, green, purple, old, young, human, animal. We're actually all souls. <laughs> and what Srila Prabhupada has given us is the ancient science of how to act as a soul. You could, uh, Prabhupada calls this our constitutional activities. You can also sit like right here and we can fill up this space. So our constitutional activities are the activities that we do as a soul. So what do the souls do? What do souls do? Huh? They enjoy, yes, they're always happy. What? Loving exchange with Krishna. Yes, loving exchange with Krishna. And how is this demonstrated? What kind of loving exchanges? Service. service. And what are the categories of service? Revealing the mind. Revealing the mind. Oh, six loving exchanges. Very nice. Very nice. Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu, Smaranam. Archanam, Vandinam, Dasyam, Atmanivedanam. So very nice. I like that you said six loving exchanges. Thank you. I'm going to make a note of that. So we could talk about the six loving exchanges with Krishna. We reveal our mind to Krishna, and we hear Krishna reveal his mind. Where do we hear Krishna reveal his mind? Bhagavad Gita. So many places in Bhagavatam, Chaitanya Charitamrita. We give gifts to Krishna, we accept his gifts. Right? We give him something to eat, and we accept what he gives us to eat. So these are the activities of the soul. And then we could talk about the nine processes. We hear about Krishna, we talk about Krishna, we remember Krishna. We serve the deity, we serve everything in relationship to Krishna. We become Krishna's friend. And then Rupa Goswami has how many items he lists? 64. So those 64 fit into the nine processes. You can put each of the 64 into one of the nine processes. So these are part of the soul. And those activities, it doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. It doesn't matter if you're intelligent or you're not so intelligent. If you're beautiful or you're not so beautiful. If you're sickly or you're healthy. Or it doesn't matter. Those are the activities on the platform of the soul. And those are open for everyone. So what Srila Prabhupada has given us is a process where men and women can equally engage, completely equally engage. Of course, sometimes there are some places where they don't do this, but that's what Prabhupada gave us, that there should be equal <coughs> access to spiritual activities for everyone who's a soul. What is the qualification for doing spiritual activities? Desire. Desire, right. That you're a soul with some desire, that's all. Nothing else. There's no other qualification. Nothing. All right, but the problem is that we have this body and this mind, which is actually mostly a problem. <laughs> it, primarily it's a problem. It's, it's a, a prison. It's like a prison uniform. And until we are liberated from the modes of material nature, we have activities according to the body and the mind. 
So these are called conditional activities. And Srila Prabhupada very nicely in Bhagavad Gita 9.30 says that sometimes these activities go in parallel to another and sometimes they conflict with one another. So activities of the body and mind mean according to our age, just like when you're young, you go to school. Right? When you're youthful, generally, if it's a normal society, you get married, you have children, generally. Now in modern society, I don't know what we do. Now people are not getting married anymore, they're not having children, or they get married when they're, you know, 68 or something like that. But this is crazy society. But that's the idea, that when you're young, you go to school, and when you're, in your, when you're a child, when you're in youth, you get married, and when you're older, you retire. So those are, that's a body. That's according to the age of the body. And then when you're in youthful life, you have to earn a livelihood. When you're a child, you don't have to earn a livelihood. And when you're retired, you don't have to earn a livelihood. But when you're in your youthful life, say 20 to 50, something like that, 20 to 60, so then you have to earn a livelihood. So that's according to our psychology. According to our body and our psychology, both. What one does for a livelihood. And ideally, those activities should also be in relationship to Krishna. They should be offered to Krishna. The activities of the soul are like the fire on the stove. And the activities of the body and mind should be like the pot on top of the stove. So if the fire is on, the pot also gets hot. So if we dedicate our activities to Krishna, then they become just as good as the activities of the soul. They have the same effect. But inherently, they're not like that. So the activities of the soul, they're inherently spiritual. Of course, you can also do them materially. That's possible. You know, you can uh, teach Bhagavatam (coughs) as a business. It is possible. You can worship the deity as a business, that actually you don't care about Krishna, you don't believe in Krishna, you don't love Krishna, and just something to make money. You can do It's possible. So just like you can take spiritual activities and you can do them in a materialistic way, you can take material activities and do them in a spiritual way. So doing this act, material activities in a spiritual way is actually very simple. Uh, we were talking about it today. It's just you realize that I work for Krishna. He's my company president. And what form of Krishna? That you, what you like. Some, people, some of you, you want to work for Krishna. Some you want to work for Lord Chaitanya. Some you want to work for Lord Nityananda. Some people want to work for Radharani. That's okay. Maybe some of you want to work for Nasinga Dave. He sounds like a pretty scary boss to me. <laughs> He's not scary. See, some of you really like to see him. Yeah, you just see him like a big cat, huh? <laughs> so you have, you have Krishna as your company president. And what are we selling? What is our product? Devotion. Yeah, bhakti, prema. We're, we're selling love. We're selling love of God. And everyone we meet 
everyone we deal with is one of three things. They're our supplier, or they're our co-worker, or they're our customer. So whatever we do, in our, according to our age, which is ashram, if I'm going to school, if I'm taking care of a husband, I'm taking care of children, I'm taking care of my elderly parents, or whatever I'm doing for my work, whatever I'm doing to maintain my body and earn a living, everyone I'm dealing with, they are either a supplier, or a co-worker, or a customer. But none of them are my boss. Some of them may be an intermediate boss, like Guru. He's like a department head, like a foreman. Or he may be a supplier also. Some of the sadhus there are suppliers. So this way, everything I do is dedicated to Krishna. It doesn't so much matter what you do. I mean, you can't, do, you can't sell love of God in a butcher shop. Not very easily, anyway. Very difficult. <coughs> or in a liquor shop. Although it says if you see Lord Nityananda going in a liquor shop, you know he's going to sell love of God. But generally we don't want to work in a liquor shop. So except for things like that, wherever we're going, we're selling our product. And you have to market the product also. Market it and sell it. Both. You understand? And that way everything becomes spiritual. So, let's look at the old tradition. So in the old tradition, some people like to say that women didn't have practically any role in bhakti. They like to say that women only had one ashram and no varna. So I wonder the people who say this if they've ever met any women. <laughs> this is my first question. You know, do they have a mother or sisters? Do they know any women in their life? Because I, don't, I really don't understand how people can say this if they've actually lived in the world with their eyes open. Oh, oh my channel is here to take care of me. What kind of tea have you brought? From this class tomorrow, this morning. Oh, the same? Yes. Okay. It was good? Yes, it was good. Everything you give me is good. Thank you so much. Is there room for you to sit? What is it? Some room for you there? Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course, you will find room somewhere. Okay. Two couches. So why don't we look first at bhakti? So we find within the Shastra that there are examples of many, many women who are engaging in the process of bhakti. Can you give me some examples of ladies in the Shastra? Kunti, Janva, Kunti, Draupadi, more? Kangamata. Kangamata. Can you open the door a little bit? Otherwise, we're going to run out of air in here. Krishna's mother. 
Actually, I, I'm in, um, engaging one devotee lady right now. I've asked her to go through the Bhagavatam and find all of the verses in the Bhagavatam that are spoken by women. <laughs> because sometimes people say women shouldn't give Bhagavatam class. So I'm thinking then we will have to skip all those verses. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to show that a good portion of the Bhagavatam is actually spoken by women. Yeah, Devaki, Kunti, uh, hmm? Sati, the Gopis, Pingala. And sometimes there's just one verse here and there, like Bali Maharaj's wife or the women of Mathura also are speaking. So there's sometimes just one or two verses here and there, and sometimes it's a whole section of the Bhagavatam. So this is our Shastra, and part of our Shastra is actually spoken by women. And if you look at our uh, Sampradaya, of course, in the Bhagavad Gita, the Sampradaya we list there is a Shiksha Sampradaya. We're not listing our Diksha Sampradaya. And we're listing just the main Acharyas. But if you look in our Diksha lines, there's about 20% Lady Gurus. So like Bhaktivinoda Thakur, he's in the Diksha line from? Janavamata, yes. And there's two or three other Lady Gurus between him and Janavamata. So this was very accepted. If you read Bhakti Ratnakara, you can read about women who were temple presidents, who were installing deities. Gangamata Goswamini also installed the deity of Sadbuj in uh, Sarvabhamabhattacharya's house. So definitely we won't find 50%, although women are 50% of the population, we will not find 50%, but maybe 20-30% we'll find. And I've thought about this a lot that, oh, this is wonderful, my darling. I thought about a lot how Mahaprabhu, he was preaching that bhakti is not determined just by birth. And he showed it a little bit. He had a few followers. You know, Ramananda Roy, who acted as his guru, Haridas Thakur, Rupan Sanatan, Jagayan Madai. He had a few followers who by society were considered fallen that he engaged equally in bhakti. But uh, Mahaprabhu didn't so much challenge the social structures of, the, of his time. Like Rupan Sanatana and Haridas Thakur, they never went in Jagannath's temple. Of course, Jagannath in the form of Mahaprabhu went to see them. But they didn't go in the temple. And Mahaprabhu didn't, um, he didn't push this. You know, he left the system. But we see that Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati, he pushed it. He was initiating people born in non-Brahmin families and engaging them in all of the activities of Bhakti, for which he was almost killed. And then Srila Prabhupada pushed it even further. Right? And having so many disciples from all over the world and engaging men and women in Krishna consciousness. So that is the activities of bhakti. Then let's look at the ashrams. So definitely women have at least three ashrams. Sometimes people like to say we are only in the grahasta ashram. They want to focus 
on women's activities in the Grahastha Ashram, but we have at least three. So, of course, we are not born married. <laughs> so, we must be in some uh, ashram before one gets married. And women were also students. Uh, women in ancient times were not illiterate. I'm sure some people were illiterate, just like today some people are illiterate. But the gopis could write. They were writing letters. When uh, the acharyas say that when Uddhava brought a letter from Krishna to Vrindavan, that actually he brought one letter from Krishna for each gopi. <laughs> so they could write, they could read. They were often sending messages. Rukmini, of course, could also write. And they knew many mantras. Although sometimes Prabhupada said they were not educated. My understanding is they were not highly educated. You understand? They didn't have, like, university education. Often when Prabhupada says someone was not educated, he doesn't mean that they were illiterate. He means that they were not highly educated. But they certainly knew. They knew about the structure of the universe. They knew how to chant different mantras. They knew how to read and write, and so forth. And we have, you know, some of them were, like Chitraleka was a mystic yogini, and she could, she could capture anybody from any part of the universe. So we obviously had, women were getting an education, and they were students. <laughs> and then, of course, in the Shastra, after marriage, there is the Vanaprastha ashram. So women also entered into this ashram, not only men. Sometimes people ask me, you know, can there be women in the renounced ashrams? And the answer is definitely yes. You know, when Mahaprabhu took sannyas, Vishnu Priya was in the renounced ashram. Same as when Kardama Muni, uh, when he took sannyas, Devahuti was in the renounced ashram. Now, in most of those cases, the women were staying at home, but not always. Janava Mata, when she became a widow, she became a traveling preacher when she was traveling with her disciples and followers. So sometimes women are in the renounced ashram along with their husbands. Sometimes the men and women are renounced together as vanaprastas. Sometimes, like Prabhupada, became a vanaprasta separate from his wife. Sometimes women enter into the renounced ashram when their husband dies. So there can be many ways. You know, the husband dies or the husband goes away or if the husband gets older. And in so many ways, or someone like Gangamata, which was unusual in those days, who never married. So today we see that more. And at that time it was unusual. So we have at least several different ways. You know, a woman who never marries, a woman whose husband dies, um, or a woman whose husband gets older. And sometimes people have said things like, well... If, you know, in the modern times, if a woman is divorced, she can't be in the renounced ashram. And I said, why not? No. Whatever impels you to be in the renounced ashram, it doesn't matter, really. The point is whether or not your renunciation is genuine, not what is the uh, impetus. I mean, Prabhupada took up the Vanaprastha ashram because... His wife didn't want to cook anymore. She was just buying the food from outside and she sold his Bhagavatam and she was drinking tea. I think it was a long term. He was already like 54. <coughs> and he said, okay, it's time to renounce. So that doesn't mean his renunciation was not genuine. You understand? Or Maharaj Anga, he renounced because uh, Vena was such a problem. 
his son Vena was such a problem. But that doesn't mean his renunciation was not genuine. So you can have you can genuinely be in the renounced ashram in many different circumstances. It doesn't have to follow some sort of absolute formula. And of course we have in the Bhagavatam especially list the duties of women in the Grahasta ashram and duties of women in the renounced ashram. We don't see too many duties of women in the student ashram, a little bit, but not very much. So anyway, there's definitely a place for women in at least three ashrams, as a student, as a married woman, and as a renunciate. Now, of course, some of us in the modern age don't really fit neatly into any of those. I mean, it's, it's really a problem. And it's not just for women, but men also have really the same problem. You know, what do you do if you're 35 years old and you're still not married, but you'd like to be married? What ashram are you in? I don't know. You know, it's hard to say. And if you're living outside and you have your own place and you have a job, then you're sort of a grahasta without a man. <laughs> you know? You're not really in the renounced ashram. You're not really a student. Same if you're widowed or you're divorced and you, you have young children and you're still working in the world. You, you know, you're, you're really much more in the grahasta ashram than you are in the renounced ashram or the student ashram. So if you want to have some idea what are the sort of uh, duties in the Shastra that apply to me. Basically, if, you're, if you have your own place and you're earning your own money and you're working out in the world, if you're doing things to earn an income, because earning an income is for the Grahastha Ashram. In, in the student ashram and in the renounced ashram, you're not earning an income anymore. So if you're uh, engaged in earning an income and providing for yourself, then even if you don't have a husband, even if there's no man, then you're much more in the mood of the Grahasasha as far as the regulations of the scriptures. Okay, then we have also people who say, well, women didn't have any kind of occupation in the world. Have you heard this? Have any of you heard this? That the Vedic woman only has ashram duties. That the only thing the Vedic woman would do would be cooking, cleaning, sewing, childcare, washing dishes. You've heard this, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's very interesting where this idea comes from. Well, how did we get this idea? So if you look in the scriptures, this is not what you see. First of all, you see that women also have varna. You all know what varna is? So varna literally means color. It means the area of what you do to earn a livelihood. I was thinking about, this is a little side area, but I was thinking, why is it that the Shastra talks about varnas at all? I mean, there's hundreds of different kinds of occupations, right? Maybe thousands of different things you can do to earn a livelihood. So why does the Shastra group them into, why does Krishna group them into four main categories of occupation? I thought the reason is that what Krishna does is he says, okay, according to the category of occupation, you have somewhat different system for connecting it with Krishna. You connect it with Krishna a little differently. Just like different sorts of machines, they may have different kinds of plugs. You know, I have an electronic reader, and the, the plug for that reader is different. I can't just change 
like the wire I have to charge my mp3 player and the wire I have to charge my reader it's a little different I can't just change them so according to the different categories of occupations a little different way that you connect with Krishna so therefore there is some value to understanding which of the four categories it fits also according to the different categories one has a little different psychology because the, their occupations are determined just like even nowadays you can take some personality tests to decide what occupation you have so a little different mentality so we know that women have varna because many many places in the Bhagavatam and even in Manu Samhita it talks about Varna in relationship to what? To their husbands, yes. It talks about Varna in relationship to marriage. So the main discussion where it's very clear that women have Varna is in relationship to marriage. And how is Varna discussed in relationship to marriage? Yes, that men and women of the same varna should marry each other. So this is, it's in many places in Bhagavatam. It's spoken directly by Krishna to Rukmini. It's in the Manu Samhita. And there's a number of stories that have to deal with, that deal with this. Like King Yayati, who was a Ksatriya, who married Devayani, who was a Brahmana. And this was a problem. He said, I can't marry you. You have a higher varna. I'm not allowed to marry you. Or Roma Harshan Sutta also. His mother was a Brahmana and his father was a Ksatriya. So it was considered not a proper marriage. So generally they should be equal and if they were not equal, then the woman should be lower. Why? Because the wife should respect her husband and she she has difficulty doing this if she thinks she's higher. Not thinks she's higher. She is, she is higher. <laughs> Any other reasons? Easier for women to adjust. Easier for women to adjust? Well, if the man and woman are a different varna, both people have to adjust. Therefore, generally, the varna should be the same. And I don't know if it's easier for women to adjust. I'm not sure if I, if I agree with that. Any other thoughts about why, if there's a difference, that the man should be higher? There is some about children. Hmm? About children. They get from mother's side something, and from the father's side... Okay, but why would that matter which one was higher, whether it was the father or the mother? I don't exactly remember anymore. <clears throat> but it was explained by Bhakti some, for example, some, I don't know, from father or from mother, they get like but then the quality from other side, they get like shudra, so then hmm, Interesting. It definitely makes it harder for the children when the parents don't match. I was thinking also, because a woman is expected to follow her husband, why is a woman expected to follow her husband, by the way? Male psychology. Male psychology. 
I mean, look, we, we have a female psychology also. And our female psychology is just as foolish. It's just different. So as women, we need to know that our husband cares about us and is attracted to us, finds us attractive. If the man says to his wife, oh, you're very, you're, you're very old and ugly and fat, then the woman feels insecure. She doesn't, she doesn't feel like she has actually any care. So the man has to say to his wife, you know, you are the most beautiful woman in the world. Even though she looks in the mirror and she knows I'm not the most beautiful woman in the world. And she knows that her husband knows also. <laughs> but, but she needs to hear that from the husband. She needs the husband to say, yes, you, you, are, you are so beautiful. I really care about you. And the man needs to know, you are my hero. Now again, you know, you know the man is not always a hero. Sometimes he's a hero, sometimes he's not a hero. Sometimes he does foolish things. And the man knows that you know. <laughs> but still he has to think that you believe that he is a hero, that you need him. So this is the, the gift that husband and wife have to give each other. It's the, the service. Just like children, they need affection. You know, even when they are naughty, even when they dump all the rubbish on the floor and they, so many things. But they still, they need affection. That's the service. So it's, it's a little difficult for the woman to see her husband as a hero, like you're saying, if she's actually higher. Also, it means that in order to let him feel that he's a hero, she may have to kind of push down her own nature. It may be hard for her, if she's higher than him, it may be hard for her to be who she is and still have him feel like a hero. And this is a real problem. Then there'll be a conflict between her duties as a wife and her own nature. So better to avoid this. Much better to avoid this situation. And then often the woman will be dragged down. You don't want to drag anybody down. So the idea is the woman should not be higher. So the people who say women who have no varna, they say, yes, yes, this is true, that people of equal varna should marry, but this is decided just by birth. So I'm still waiting for them to show me the verse. That for men, varna is by quality and work, and for women, varna is by birth. So I think somehow the, somebody must have taken that verse out of the Bhagavad Gita, because in Bhagavad Gita, I only see chapter Varna Mayashtam, Guna, Karma, Vivagashaha. Varna is decided by Guna and Karma. And there's not another verse after that that says, but for women, it's decided by birth. So if for women, if for women is another evidence is that Prabhupada talks about finding the Varna by astrology. So if a woman's Varna was just from her father, why do astrology? <laughs> then you already know this woman has Ksatriya father, she must be Ksatriya. What is the need of looking at astrology? But Prabhupada said the Varna was decided by astrology. So then sometimes they will say, all right, all right, okay, but then women only have the quality of the Varna and not the work of the Varna. So there's a number of people now preaching like this, and they're writing papers, and they're posting it, and you may see some of these. 
that they'll say women have the guna, the qualities, but they don't have the work. So, first of all, this is not in the Shastra. This is something that they are making up. They cannot, people who say this, they cannot find any quote anywhere to support this. I mean, you should ask people when they say something, what is your, where is your source? This is something we were trained early in the Krishna consciousness movement. What's your source? And you can say it very politely. Oh, that's wonderful. That's so interesting. What's your source for that? You know, you don't have to come like challenging. What's your source? <laughs> but there's no source like this. Women only have guna and not karma. Also, if that were true, then Krishna would be a very cruel, cruel, cruel person. If you have a quality and you don't have any means of expressing that quality, then that's torture. That's cruelty. You have some ability, you have some inclination, you have some psychology, but there's no ability to express it. So why would there be a, a, a system to do that? It would be horrible. So it doesn't even make sense from the point of view just of being happy. Prabhupada talks a lot about how should we should be happy even in this material world. Just reading that actually. <coughs> the devotee should be happy in this world and then go back to home, back to Godhead. Our philosophy is not, I'm just going to suffer in this world. <laughs> That's not our philosophy. And then, from a practical point of view, if you go back about 150 to 200 years before the Industrial Revolution, women were working. Yes. Not outside the home. But guess who else wasn't working outside the home? The men weren't working outside the home either. I mean, some. Some. Or sometimes the men might be traveling for something. I mean, some men. If you're a merchant and a trader, then you might be working on a boat or you might be traveling and trading. But... Chanika Pandit says, a man is happy if he doesn't have to leave home to go to work. That's a wonderful quote where Prabhupada talks about home-based business. So it used to be very few people left home to go to work. They were working out of the home. And people who say that women have no varna, do they really believe that the work of a queen and the work of the wife of a weaver is the same? Do they really think both those women have the same life? Oh, please, no, leave it open so we get some, yeah, yeah. You know, if you read about Draupadi speaking in the Mahabharata to Sachabama, and Sachabama says, how do you keep five husbands happy? And she talks about, you know, how she wakes up before they do and goes to sleep after they do. She talks about how she manages the royal household. The royal household, she said, was 100,000 people. Something like Vatican City. You know, it was like a royal city. She was like mayor of a city. She said, I am the only one who knows the income and expenditure of the empire. 
She was the Secretary of the Treasury. She was helping to manage the government. She wasn't just changing nappies and washing dishes. And Prabhupada talks about seeing, you know, the weaver, that the, that the woman is spinning the thread and the husband is weaving the cloth and the children are also helping. So part of the reason why a man and woman of the same varna would marry is so that they could work together in an occupation. And then the woman assisting her husband and the woman earning an occupation were the same thing. When it says the woman should assist her husband, if you marry a man who has the same occupation, you're assisting him is also working in the same business. I'm sure it doesn't always work out cleanly. I'm sure it's not always, and especially now, it's not always going to work out perfectly like that. But you can understand the concept. So then what happened? In the Industrial Revolution, you probably remember from school, one of the first industries to industrialize was the textile industry. And the textile industry was especially an industry where women were doing a lot of the work from home. So a lot of the women were spinning, there was a lot of weaving going on at home. When the textile industry industrialized and went into the factories, some of the main people who started working out of home were women. And especially young unmarried women would work in the factories until they would marry. And gradually, most occupations moved out of the house to factories and to offices and so forth. So then there was a, a, an outcry that, well, the women can't leave home and go to work. Who's going to take care of the children? Who's going to manage the household? So you had a period of time, really in the middle part of the last century especially, where women really did not have barn. Where the men were going to work and the women were just cooking, cleaning, changing diapers, ironing clothes, and so forth. Now, of course, that was also an interesting time because that's when birth control became popular. So women were only having maybe two or three children. <coughs> Previously, the average was six. And also where there became a lot of machines. So there was the washing machine, and the blending machine, and this machine, and that machine. So now you had all of a sudden women without a varna, and without even that much to do for their ashram duties. You know, the ashram duties no longer took up a lot of time and energy. What were you going to do? What were these women supposed to do? And at one point they said, this is not life. We're not satisfied with this. And they had a revolution and said, we're going to go out and work in the world like the men. We want to make a meaningful contribution to society. We want to use our gifts and our talents in some way for ourselves and some way for the world. Now, of course, in doing this, uh, that created so many other problems for women to do that. There had to be uh, widespread legalized abortion and then many women delayed marriage, and then there was a lot of undue association between men and women in the workplace, and so many problems. So when people look at the problems of men and women in the workplace, they think the solution is to go back to women not having 
anything they're doing to contribute to an income and contribute to society. But they're just not looking back far enough. They're looking back maybe to the 1950s or 1960s instead of looking back to the 1850s. So if they look back to the 1850s, then they would see, oh, there's a way that women can have ashram duties and varna duties and have them in balance. And those were days when women had an average of six children. You know, when they married young, when most women were married by the time they were 20. And when homework was more difficult, of course, the other people had servants also. There was a whole servant class. So how are we going to do this today? You know, if we think that being a Krishna conscious woman means that I don't have any way in which I'm contributing to society other than just being a wife and a mother, that will not work. First of all, it's just not real. This isn't real. There's very, very few people who are going to be satisfied their whole life just doing that. You know who's going to be satisfied their whole life doing that? Someone whose nature it is to be a house servant. You understand? A domestic servant. That's what a domestic servant does. A domestic servant. When I was little, my parents had servants. So what did the servants do? That's what they're doing. They're cooking, they're cleaning, they're doing the laundry, they're taking care of the children. So if a woman has that nature, then she'll be happy just doing that. So how, what percentage of women are going to be in that category? It's going to be small. And anybody else, anyone who has any other nature except wanting to be a domestic servant is not going to be satisfied with that. Just not. No, and Krishna says very clearly in the Bhagavad Gita, in the third chapter and in the 18th chapter, that our choices are to use our nature for him or to use our nature for illusion. He says you cannot repress your nature and you cannot do somebody else's duties. He said you will do your own nature. Your only choice is to do it for Krishna or to do it for illusion. That's all. (coughs) So, at least according to Krishna, and he says this twice in the Gita, you know, a good teacher repeats things and a good teacher says things at the end. So Krishna repeats this point and he says it at the very end of the Gita. So we should understand whatever our nature is, we will do it. And we will either do it in a way that takes us further from Krishna or we will do it in a way that brings us closer to Krishna. So our challenge is, our challenge is, first of all, to find the ways that women can express their varna and ashram duties so that neither one becomes damaged. Not to do your ashram duties so your varna duties become damaged and not to do your varna duties so your ashram duties become damaged. And to link all of that in bhakti. To link all of that in bhakti. By the way, one of the purposes of the grahasta ashram is to have a way of expressing the psychophysical nature. Because remember the varna duties, they relate to earning an income? And that's only done in the grahasta ashram. Those people who think they can skip the Grahasta Ashram, those are people who don't have much need to express their Varna nature. Because Varna has to do with income. So that's one of the functions of the Grahasta Ashram. And one of the factors in allowing one to take up the renounced ashrams peacefully is that you've already expressed those in Krishna's service. 
you come to a point in your life that you say, yes, I already used my psychophysical nature for the benefit of society, for the benefit of Krishna, and I'm satisfied. And now I can go to a life where I'm not really doing that anymore. Now I'm going, now I'm going to go to a life where I'm doing pretty much, as far as possible, just the constitutional activities. Does that make sense to everybody? Mm-hmm. Yes. And if you don't express that in the youthful time of life, <coughs> then when it comes to being the renounced ashram, you'll be disturbed. Mm-hmm. And this comes to, this involves having a relationship with a man, having children, having money, having a house, expressing your nature. Some people can skip that. There are some people that they are, are so fixed in bhakti that they don't need to put the pot on the fire. They can just cook right on the fire. They don't need a pot. But most of us, we have a pot. We've got to do something with it. We've got to use it somewhere. And then we're satisfied. If you've done that, you get to a point when you're around 50 or so, 40, 50, 60, somewhere around there, where you say, okay, I'm satisfied. Not that you, be, not you, that you become renounced because you say, oh, it was so terrible. With all due respect to the sannyasis who've never been married, or who only had one year of a strange marriage or something like that, <laughs> it's not like that. It just isn't. It isn't that you become a renunciate out of disgust. It's not that you say, "Ew, that <laughs> was terrible," because disgust is another form of attachment. I'm sorry. You know, you can take birth again with somebody because you hated them. You know that, right? It's described with Maharaj Chitraketu. When his young son died, he said, maybe you were my enemy in another life, and you've become my son and died at a young age just to give me pain. I mean, I know one devotee where several astrologers told them that she and her husband had died in their last life on the battlefield, killing each other. And now they were still going at it. <laughs> So you hate something, you'll go to it. And we've seen, I'm sorry to have to say this, but we've seen both men and women who appear to be renounced and all they talk about is, oh, the grass doesn't do women in like this. And then there they are. You understand? And this one lady is writing me letters. Oh, my husband is just so materialistic. And he's just interested in sex, so I left him. And now I found, and she has like three children. And now I fell in love with this brahmachari. But it's all spiritual. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope I want to marry him. I said, if you want to marry him, it's not all spiritual. So finally, after like a month, she finally admitted Actually, yes, it's, it's, it is lust, but it's only subtle lust. <laughs> she said, if, if I married him, I couldn't have sex with him. Then it would ruin the whole relationship. I said, sex doesn't ruin the relationship if you're married to somebody. <laughs> and then she writes to me again, and she says, actually, I have a lot of problems with gross sexual desire. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. So better to be honest. You understand? 
If someone's saying, we find this all the time, if someone is saying, you know, oh, I hate this, I hate that, I hate this, I hate the women, I hate the men, I hate sex, I hate... Then we find that we're somebody after some time. Almost always. You know, then when they're 50 or 60 years old. And I've seen it with women also. Anyway, that's not how we become detached. We don't become detached by hating. Hating is another side of attachment. We become detached by, by saying, okay, I used this for Krishna. I did it. It's done. I finished that part. Just like you finish going to school and then you graduate. And then it's done. Then you go on with your life. You don't leave school just because it was terrible. You leave school because you finished. <laughs> you graduated. You learned what you needed to learn. And you can go on to a new phase in life. Now, one last area I want, and then I'll open it up. One last area I want to look at that, that can be confusing. And that is the difference and the similarities between the occupational duties of a brahmana and the activities of bhakti. Mm-hmm. So this is very confusing because we're talking about constitutional activities and conditional activities. So the brahmanas, as part of their livelihood, they are studying the shastras, they're teaching the shastras, they're worshipping the deity. They're engaging others in worshiping the deity, but those are also the activities of bhakti. Of course, brahmanas may do other activities. They might be a doctor, or they might be a counselor, or might be an astrologer. But sometimes this is a little confusing. You know, we're not quite sure: is this transcendental activity, or is this transcendentalized material activity? So I'm not sure if I have some absolute answer for that. But I would say that, again, that everybody can do the activities of bhakti. Everybody can do the activities of bhakti. Your only qualification, your only adhikar, is your desire to do them. And the degree to which you're following the process of bhakti. Uh, But we're not doing the activities of bhakti as the way to earn our livelihood. Whereas the activities of a brahmana are done as their way of earning their livelihood. That's how they're maintaining themselves in the world. So it's a little different slant. I hope that this was interesting for all of you. So we looked at women in bhakti, looked at women in the ashrams, and we looked at women in the varnas. So we can take a little time. I don't think I want to go... Where are we supposed to go to... Okay, we can do that. We'll just end at 3. Because then I'm supposed to give a class at 3.40. And I need to do some work. Yes? Yes, I have a question. So you said, like, you can't renounce it. disgust. And a little bit before that, you were mentioning all these examples, like uh, how people became renounced no matter what the cause, like you mentioned. Oh, very and good. So how does it... Okay. So it's not that they're disgusted. Like when Vidura, when Duryodhan insulted him and he became a Vanaprastha. It wasn't that he was averse to material life, but he saw this particular situation is Krishna's way of telling me it's time to renounce. 
This is Krishna telling me I need to move on. I know some devotees, they were renting a house in India and everything started breaking. I mean, everything had always been breaking, but it really started breaking. And there started to be electrical fires in the walls and so many things. And so the husband started really praying to their deities and saying, please, please, you know, can't we be in some place where the electricity and the water are working? And the next day the landlord came and said, I need this house from my relatives, you have to leave. (laughs) (laughs) And then they had a much nicer place. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes you may move because the... There's electrical fires in the walls. That doesn't mean you're disgusted. You understand this is Krishna telling me that it's Krishna. Krishna can indicate in so many ways. You can become renounced just because you're older and your children are married and things are done. You're done. Just like Prabhupada talks about entering the Vanaprastha ashram, he compares it to that you close your store at a certain time. You have certain hours. You, close, you open from 9 to 5. He said, so like at 5 o'clock, it doesn't matter if there's more customers, you close the store. <coughs> so you can close the store for that reason. Or maybe you close the store because there's been a power outage and there's just no electricity. And so even though it's only 11 o'clock, you might close the store. That doesn't mean you're disgusted. Thank you. It was a very nice question. Thank you. How would you explain uh, that our body is limited, our uh, activities of devotional service, in the sense where we are impure, we cannot offer lamps to Dhammadar, we cannot offer flowers to Guru. So, in a way, uh, our body is limiting our bhakti. No, nothing is nothing limits bhakti. Or activities of devotional service. No, nothing limits the activities of devotional service. As far as how things are expressed externally in the world, we all have to sleep. What to do? But no, bhakti is not limited. Bhakti means love and devotion. One can always remember Krishna. And you can offer things in the mind. Krishna accepts offerings in the mind also. If somehow Krishna is limiting you externally, that's a good impetus to become more internal. Or to make a different kind of offering. I remember seeing my mother. My mother was a very, very, very active woman. She was in charge of several international charity organizations. And she was a very learned, very knowledgeable person, excellent memory. And she was very active. And then when she was 75, she got Parkinson's disease, and she got gradually sicker and sicker until she died when she was 89. 14 years. Uh, gradually, by the time she died, she couldn't even turn over by herself. It's like a, like a two-month-old baby, physically. Her mind was still sharp, but she couldn't speak. She could move her lips. If she wanted water, she'd say, 
but she couldn't make any sound. And she could hear. Like I said, she could think. Her mind was fine. And as I watched this happening to her and her losing her ability to function on the gross platform, I noticed that she suffered a lot because she didn't have any kind of internal life. All of her life had been external. And when she lost the ability, which happened very gradually, when she lost the ability to function externally, she didn't have anything else. You know, she kept trying and trying and trying to do things externally again, and she couldn't. And as I watched her, I thought, I really need to have an internal life. Because this body's going to go. So, I am sure that one reason that Krishna sometimes limits us externally is to push us to go internal. Sometimes when we get injured, when we get sick, there's some situation where we really can't do that much externally. I mean, say you're even riding in a car. You know, we were here in the car for, like, five hours. What are you going to do? How much are you going to do in a car? How can you do? What can you do? You know, one devotee arranged that we did five hours in a car instead of nine hours in a train. Of course, those are terrible trains. They're from the old communist era. They're, like, from... 1960 or something. Trains from Patala Loka. <laughs> but at least in the train, you have some space. I mean, they were so dirty. But what are you going to do in a car? I mean, you have your beads. You know what I'm saying? What are you going to do? There's little space, and you have this belt on you, and I mean, how much can you do? But you can chant, you can meditate. And it's a, it's a nice time to do that. Sometimes it's great. Hey, people, you know, they save up their money for a year or two just to fly in a plane all the way to India so they can just go in kirtan for 12 hours. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Or go to some kirtan retreat or some japa retreat and... Prabhupada talks about how the people who live next to the Ganga, they travel to a holy place to take bath in the Ganga. <laughs> so, you know, we, we spend a lot of time and money. Let me go to this place away from my life so I can just concentrate on chanting. But if you have some situation like that right now, then thank you, Krishna. When my oldest son was born... I was spending between four to six hours every day reading Prabhupada's books and three to four hours every day listening to Prabhupada's lectures. And I was thinking, now my life is finished because I'm not going on Sankirtan. <laughs> I actually thought like that. I thought I'm not doing any real service. And I would lament, why did I get married? Why did I have a baby? I can't do any service. I was such a fool. And now I think, that went on for like a year and a half. And I thought, wow, you know, if you could say to somebody now, one, one and a half years, you can read Prabhupada's books four to six hours a day and listen to Prabhupada's lectures three to four hours. And I wasn't just listening. I had a whole system. I had a, you know, now there's computers, but I had a whole system with little box and cards and I was writing down quotes and putting them in different categories and I was really studying 
I didn't know what I was doing it for, because at that time women weren't preaching. I didn't know I was doing that for now. <laughs> Somebody knew, but I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't understand it. I was actually being prepared, but I didn't see that. I, I, didn't, I didn't appreciate it, I'm sorry. But I really didn't appreciate it. And I thought about it, you know, people, I thought people will save their money and go to a lot of trouble just to do what I was doing by the circumstances of my life. Always, always, always. How can the situation I'm in bring me closer to Krishna? Instead of, what can I adjust in the situation to make me more Krishna conscious? Okay. 10%, how can I adjust my situation so I can be more Krishna conscious? 90%, how can I be Krishna conscious in the situation I'm in now? What's favorable about it? Is that all right? <laughs> you know what happens if you envy somebody else's situation? You just get another body, that's all. <laughs> Whatever you got, you know, you got a bicycle, you got a motorcycle, you got a skateboard, you got a boat, you got a plane, doesn't matter. Just go to Krishna. And don't be looking around, oh, if only I had a motorcycle. If only I had a bus. Who cares, anyway? I mean, it's such a short life. It really, it's really a short life. Those of you who are young... It's a really short life, <laughs> guys. It is so short. You just go, and it's all gone. And all of the problems and the worries and the catastrophes, and the, you won't even remember them. You really won't. You'll remember, oh yeah, I remember I got into a fight with my husband that day. What were we fighting about? Why do remember? It'll be so unimportant. Anything else? You take one more. That's it. Yes. No, no, please. No, no, I showed that you have. <laughs> yes. Uh, this morning you mentioned um, how important it is uh, to accept uh, our limits and to accept the fact that we have these four faults. And maybe you could say something about this, how to put it in practice, how to accept mm, That's it. a big topic. But basically accepting that we have the four defects means that we don't take our minds very seriously. <laughs> that we, we are always aware that my stories about myself and about others are only that. They are not real. They're just my stories. And somebody else will have a different story about the same thing. And not to be so convinced that we see the truth and we see reality. Real practical humility. You know, there's kind of humility like, oh, no, that's, you know, that's all right. But that, that's real practical humility is more like, I really don't know very much.
You know, I'm not really, why can I, why am I so sure about things? Watch your language. Watch how you, how you interpret things. And this happened to me and this person said that. Especially when we think we know other people's motives. <coughs> how? I hardly even know my own motives. Really. Haven't you ever had Krishna show you your own motives? Went, oh. Why am I so sure I know other people's motives? Especially when it's negative. <laughs> I know they have this evil motive. <laughs> Maybe. In other words, to realize that there's many ways of interpreting what happens to us in our life. There's not only one or two or three or four ways that the way I'm interpreting my life and the way I'm telling my life story may not be real. It may not be how Krishna would tell my life story. And what to speak of how I describe what other people are doing. It, that may not be real. I've got, a, I've got a filter. There's a filter over my senses of my desires. And just don't take the mind so seriously. Really. It, it's, it's just not that serious. To be able to, to distinguish between what's my story and what's the facts. We would all get along so much better if we did that. I mean, it would be just doing that. Our relationships would improve hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. we'd also have a much easier time liking Krishna. Be much easier. We'd get along better with other people, we'd like Krishna better, we'd be happier. And it takes a little practice to be able to sort of tease out. We're so accustomed to thinking that our story is the reality. We don't think it's our story. Well, it's just what happened. But it usually isn't what happened. It's my how I'm how I'm how I'm experiencing it and how I'm understanding it, what I think things mean. Does that make sense to all of you? Do you understand what I'm talking about? Like I remember one time talking to one woman who had hurt her foot and her husband thought it wasn't serious and he didn't want to take her to the hospital. And she really wanted to go to the hospital. And he really didn't want to go. And she was almost ready to divorce him. <laughs> and, and she was crying and crying and crying. And she, she said, if he loved me, he would take me to the hospital. And I said, would it be possible for him to take you to the hospital and not love you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, then it's also possible for him to love you and not take you to the hospital. <laughs> I said, loving you doesn't necessarily mean he's going to take you to the hospital. Those two things aren't, they don't match each other. So we do this all the time. Oh, the, the reason this person said this is because of this. The reason this person did this is because of this. And this is my situation. And this is... And to, to just separate that and say, oh, okay, you know, 
this person said this. What does it mean? You know, I don't know what it means. Why don't I ask them what it means? What do you mean by that? And believe them. Instead of telling somebody, this is what you mean. I know what you mean. This is how you feel. I hate it when someone does that to me. When someone says to me, Ormila, this is how you feel. That's not how I feel. And, and whether something is bad or good, I mean, how do I know whether something is bad or good? How do I know? I don't know. Sometimes I see a year later or five years later whether something was really bad or good. Hasn't this happened to you? Something happens, you think it's terrible. And a year later you say, oh, that was the best thing that could have happened. <laughs> and other ways, sometimes something happens, you say, oh, this was a great thing, and oh my God, it was a terrible thing. I mean, I had one time, more than one time, but one time there was some devotee who said, oh, I have a lot of money, which he didn't, but he said he had a lot of money. <laughs> I didn't, anyway. And he said, and I'm going to give a lot of money for education, and I wasted months making this plan and that plan, and to just <laughs> make a plan. It's okay, so I made a plan. Oh, this problem, that problem, make another plan. I made another plan. At first I thought, oh, it's so good. Here's this rich person, and he's going to give. What was he going to give? It would have been about 800,000 euros. Do you know what he gave? Nothing. So I thought, oh, this is so good. It wasn't good. It was terrible. I mean, it was good in that I learned something. I learned don't waste your time flattering rich people. <laughs> and that was that was very useful especially if they're not actually rich <laughs> especially if they're just fakers but it was, it was very useful I decided you know I had the wrong company president Krishna's my company president what am I doing working for this guy so it was very useful but it, my point is that materially it looked good it wasn't good it was bad sometimes things that look bad are good sometimes things that look bad good are bad how do I know I don't know why am I so sure that I know everything? This is the practical value. It's so liberating. My dear friends, it's so liberating to say, I really don't know practically anything. It's so much freedom. You don't have to pretend anymore. What do I know? What do I know, actually know? I know that Krishna is God, and I'm a soul, and he's really nice, and I really want to love him. I don't really know much else. I really don't. Not very many other things I can say. What else? Yeah. It's so nice. I don't have to pretend that I, I know what my life is all about. I don't have to pretend that I know what's good and what's bad. If I'm making Krishna happy, that's good. If I'm not making Krishna happy, that's bad. Maybe if I miss my plane, that's good. Who knows? I don't know. And I don't have to judge everybody else. I mean, I have to judge as far as who I associate with. So if you're drinking and smoking, I'm not going to go eat at your house. But I don't have to judge you. Isn't that nice? And if you insult me and you yell at me, I don't have to judge you either. I may not want to listen to you, but I don't have to judge you. Now let Krishna do that. Isn't that nice? You can do it. 
I can let him do that. What a relief. I don't have to pretend that I'm Krishna anymore. Isn't that nice? Because <laughs> I'm not. So that's practical application. And you could say, Krishna, let me see things the way you see things. Let me see how you're, sh- how you're giving love in my life. Let me see how you're taking care of me. Let me see how everything you're doing for me, everything that's happening to me, is a way of you're trying to pull me closer to you. Somehow or other. That everything on the spiritual platform is good. On the material platform, good, bad, who cares? Krishna Jaskariya says it's all nonsense. This is good, this is bad. Does that help? Yes, a lot. Thank you. Very good. You know what's really, really sad? I was taking a course in education and counseling, and one of the first things they said is, how we view reality is not reality. And they had all kinds of exercises like that. And I thought, we teach this in the Bhagavatam. But we don't necessarily live like that. We just sort of say it. Yeah, I'm a conditioned soul. I have imperfect senses and cheating and mistakes and illusion. But when I read the Shastra, I know exactly what Christian means. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? We don't think... This is my understanding of the Shastra according to my level of advancement. We think, that's what it says. Well, that's obviously what it says. It says it right there. But wait a minute, I thought you have a cheating propensity. But it says it right there. I thought you have imperfect senses. No, that's what it says. How do you know that's what it says? How do you know that's what it means? Why are you so sure? Isn't that funny? That's really funny. You know, if I'm an illusion and I have a cheating propensity, then I can say, this is my understanding of what the Shastra says. (coughs) Maybe there's another understanding. (laughs) Maybe I don't have the complete understanding. If I'm still covered by the modes of material nature, then I do not have the complete understanding. I cannot. Impossible. How can I at one breath say, I'm conditioned soul, I don't see Krishna, I don't love Krishna, I'm covered by the most material, but my understanding is perfect. Huh? (laughs) So how much kinder we would be to each other if we were honest. It would be so much kinder. And they don't have to carry this big burden of pretense anymore. It's a relief. I can just be a jiva. (laughs) And I can be who I am as a jiva. It's okay, you know. I'm allowed. How we put those two things together, you know, this sort of fanatic arrogant, I know everything with this philosophy that I have a cheating propensity and I'm illusioned is very amazing to me. How we can put, how we can somehow 
and not figure out that we're doing something funny. You know, it, it just doesn't occur to us. How can you then have the absolute truth? Because whatever is said, whatever should have all, but say you can understand it in a different way. Well, first of all, Prabhupada said that we should understand every verse from many angles of vision. Second of all, even the great acharyas describe the absolute truth in different ways. Even if all of us here were liberated from the modes of material nature, and if even all of us saw Krishna in front of us all the time, we would all describe him in different ways. Because the absolute truth is a... Is a what? Inconceivable, but would we all describe this table in pretty much the same way? Would we all describe Majana Leela in pretty much the same way? Why? Because she's a person. So even when we're all liberated, the absolute truth is not a mathematical formula. The absolute truth is a person. And person means that each one of us will see him a little differently. Now, isn't that nice? Mm. Lord Kapiladev says that. He says that Krishna will take the form according to your desire. So many fights will not be there if every, anyone would That's the spiritual world. The spiritual world is everyone sees Krishna a little differently. But they all respect that everyone's an individual. They're not trying to force people to see Krishna in their own way. Sometimes they may argue about it, though. <laughs> and we had Bhagavatamrita, they argue about it with Gopakumar. Whether you can call Vishnu Gopal or not. <laughs> and some of them say yes, and some of them say no. I thought it was so cool that they had debates in, in Vaikuntha. It's like, yes, I can still debate in this beautiful world. <laughs> but it's loving, it's not envious. And they have different opinions. And they have different perspectives. See, in this world, our different opinions and different perspectives cause us so much pain. So we think, well, if everybody just saw everything the same way, which means my way, (laughs) that then we would all get along. We can't imagine. How could it be that everyone could have an individual perspective and an individual opinion and an individual realization without conflict? You can't even imagine it. But that's the spiritual world. Everyone has an individual relationship with Krishna, an individual realization, individual understanding, and yet there's not conflict. How can we know the absolute truth? By revelation. So we say that at this point in my Krishna consciousness, according to my present level of freedom from contamination, I know something about the absolute truth. I can explain the absolute truth in terms of, I can repeat what Srila Prabhupada says, and I can understand it somewhat through logic. But I have to also admit that I don't really understand anything that I haven't realized. I do, in one sense. But not really. Does that, did you understand that? Mm-hmm. There, there's something there. Mm-hmm. There's something. It's not that there's nothing. But, eh. <laughs> You know, so you have these sweets here, and I can smell them. I've been smelling them the whole time. 
And no, it's okay. Actually, I'm really full. Thank you. And because something, I don't know what percentage, but because a large percentage of eating is actually smell, I can have some understanding by smelling them. But I can't really understand them until I taste them. So I can have some by seeing them. Let's say I didn't smell them at all. Or just talking about them. Okay, so you don't see them. So there's, they're brown, and I think they're made with chickpea flour. I think they might be ladus, you know, and they're in little paper cups. Maybe they're made with peanut butter, I'm not sure. And they're kind of solid. That's something. Now that's real. It's not that it's not real. But if I said to you, do you fully understand it? You'd have to say, no. Now, if I show it to you, then you get a little bit more understanding what it is. And if we opened it up, we passed it around, and everybody smelled it like we do with the flowers, you know. <laughs> then you get a little more. But ultimately, until you taste it, how much do you know? So, yeah, I know, something of the, I know something of the absolute truth. We all here know something of the absolute truth. But let's be honest, how much do we know? How much do we actually know? I know something. And what's really interesting about Krishna consciousness is the more you know, the more you know you don't know. You're never going to get to a point where you say, okay, done. Next subject. <laughs> So in Krishna consciousness, you have these, materially, you have, you're never really satisfied. Maybe you're somewhat satisfied for a moment, but you're never really, really satisfied. But you reach a point of satiation where you're tired of it. Whatever it is. I don't care what it is. Food, sex, movies, nice clothes, whatever, I don't care, whatever it is. Mental simulation. After a certain point, like, oh, enough of that. Right? But you're never really satisfied. You never get like, yes, I'm completely satisfied. Spiritually, you're completely satisfied, and you can always have more. So you never reach a point where, like, no, I know everything about Krishna. Even Krishna doesn't know everything about Krishna. You know that, right? He also likes curiosity and learning. So he expands, and then he learns more, and then he expands, and then he learns more, and he expands, and then he learns more. So therefore, even the pure devotees, they'll say things like, I don't know anything about Krishna. I don't really have any mercy from Krishna. I don't really have... Because compared to how much mercy they can get from Krishna, which is unlimited... No, I don't really have Krishna's mercy. Because look how much mercy So if you want to have the absolute truth be something static, that everybody will have pretty much the same experience and you know it, and you know it, then that's Brahman. That's also an option. All right, I need to stop now, or I will really regret it. I guess everyone's supposed to have some prasadam. If you can please just take this and take it out, if that's all right. Sorry. Thank you very much. Thank you. If I said anything, I hope I said something helpful, and if I said something you didn't find helpful, please just ignore that part. All right,